Have you ever had a dream about a better world? Have you ever had a vision that captured your heart and your mind about what it might be like? About how good it could be? Edward Hicks had a vision like that. In Philadelphia in 1826, he painted a wonderful scene, quite large. On the right hand of the scene, you see lots of lush green foliage, grass, bushes, trees, and scattered among the foliage are wonderfully individual, even humorous animals. The thing is that there are lions and panthers along with sheep and cows and children. And they're all there safely together looking at you, the viewer. On the other side of the painting in the background runs a great blue river. And on the banks stands William Penn in his big black hat negotiating peace with the Native Americans. It's a beautiful picture. Whenever I have occasion to see it, I'm mesmerized by it. The colors, the vivid painting, but most of all this sense of wonder about what it could be, how it might be, in fact, how it should be. Hicks called it the peaceable kingdom. That's where I want to live. I want to dwell in the peaceable kingdom. I want to be there with those wonderful animals. And I want to talk with William Penn about peace and justice. And I want to drink from the clean water. But that's not the world I live in, or you either. Recently, I was having lunch with a friend, and we heard police vehicles, the sirens, many of them. And then the police helicopter circling in a certain area of the town, and calls were going out from the helicopter to the ground. I wonder what's going on, we said. We found out later that some poor soul had gone to an overpass and was dropping huge stones on the cars below as they passed. How odd, how dark, how depressing that is. That's our world. And I long for the peaceable kingdom. I long for the beginning of a new age, for a better time. I think about it. I even pray for it. Now that brings us to today's gospel. Today we celebrate, its full title is, the presentation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the temple. 
And there are a number of characters in this scene, but the temple itself is one of them. When Solomon first dedicated the temple, it was one of the wonders of the world, and he invoked God's presence, and God came down in a cloud full of glory, and the temple became the place where heaven and earth meet and where God especially dwelt. It was holy. It was a new beginning. But things happened over the centuries. In 587, the Babylonians attacked and they burned it to the ground. Some decades later, under the inspired leadership of Nehemiah, they rebuilt a temple. But the people who saw that rebuilt temple, who had seen the original temple, were told, cried because it was such a poor copy. Then along comes Herod the Great, centuries later, and in order to get on the good side of his Jewish subjects, he renovates and remodels the temple and restores it to its former glory. And there it sits in the highest part of Jerusalem, a huge complex of white marble and gleaming gold in the sun. But it's an illusion. No prophets had arisen in Israel for 300 years. No word from God. The Romans had conquered, and now they lived under the heavy hand of the emperor. The Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence, had disappeared long ago. And to top it off, the political and religious authorities had set up the workings of the temple in such a way that it was a profit-making establishment at the expense of the poor. It may have gleamed in the sun, but inside it was dark and depressing. It's into that temple that the Lord Jesus came, only 40 days old, brought by his parents, and there they meet Simeon and Anna. Now, significantly, we're told that they are prophets. Prophets, they speak God's word to God's people. And the instant that Simeon sees the baby Jesus, he bursts into his song. Lord, you now can let your servant depart in peace as you have promised, for I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the whole world, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. And as that's going on, Anna appears. She too, like Simeon, is old and lives in the temple. And both of them pray constantly. And notice what they pray for. The consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. They pray for that peaceable kingdom. They pray for that new way of living. And at the appearance of Jesus, Anna and Simeon say, this is it. Here he is. Jesus is the new temple 
that new point of connection between God and humanity. Here he is, the light of the world. Here he is, the glory of his people. A new time has been inaugurated in the baby Jesus. It's a wonderful story. And we catch glimpses of what it might be like in that peaceable kingdom. Well, you might say, long ago and far away. How do I connect? How do we get there? How do we see this light of the world that transforms the world? How do we catch a glimpse of this glory that converts us and makes us new? Well, the risen Lord Jesus acts in many ways, of course, but there are three dependable ways that you can count on. One is Scripture. We call it the Word of God because God speaks through it. Whenever we wrestle with Scripture, the Lord Jesus will lead us someplace, will prompt us in a certain direction, will challenge us and comfort us. But we do have to wrestle. No one would suggest that the Bible is an easy book to deal with. It is not. And we deal with it best together. But when we do that, things happen. Have you ever wondered why we read so much Bible in church? Or why the prayer book is 80% quotes from the Bible? It's because it's a dependable way that the Lord enlightens us. Recently, I saw an interview with the new Anglican Archbishop of Singapore. He had been raised as a Hindu, but in college he fell in with some Christian friends, and one of them gave him a copy of the Gospel of John. And for some reason, he actually read it. And he said, As soon as I had finished reading, I knew Jesus is Lord. That's the power of Scripture. Then there's prayer. Now, prayer takes many forms. It has many levels of depth, of course, but it's basically laying your life out before God and then listening. Laying your life out before God and listening. And when we do that, the light dawns. There's a paradigmatic story in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. He had had a great and exhausting battle with the prophets of Baal. And he was, as we would say, situationally depressed. And he made his way back to basics, back to the heart, back to the beginning of things. He went back to Mount Sinai, where God had first given the covenant. Where God had first said, I am your God and you are my people. 
and he went into a cave. And there was an earthquake, but no sign of God. There was a windstorm, but no sign of God. There was flame, but no sign of God. And then we are told, in a still, small voice, God spoke. It's a story about prayer. Prayer is not about spectacular, rapturous experiences, about lightning and fire and emotional things. It's about being quiet and listening for that still, small voice. The third is sacraments. Now, our church talks about seven sacraments, but I want to focus on the two big, big ones, the so-called dominical sacraments, the ones commanded by Jesus, the ones necessary for salvation. The first, of course, is holy baptism. And there in that act, God reaches out and acts on us and joins us to the risen Lord Jesus so that all the barriers between us and God are now removed and we become part of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and God gives us a bit of God's own life in the form of the Holy Spirit. What an astonishing thing. And that prepares us then for the Eucharist which is always a renewal of baptism because we remember the death of Jesus on the cross where the blood of the new covenant was shed, that sign of the exquisite, magnificent faithfulness of God to us, to the end, to death and beyond. And we experience the presence of the risen Christ as he comes to us in and under the bread and the wine. It's a miracle. the sacraments. And when we exercise scripture and prayer and sacrament, we stand beside Simeon and Anna and we pick up their song. Now I have seen your Savior, the light of salvation. And we see the very temple of God, Jesus himself. That's where I want to be. Now, here's the word. It is always and only about Jesus, the light, the glory, the one who brings us into a peaceable kingdom. In my uh, last parish, we celebrated the great vigil of Easter in a, in a unique way. One of the things that made it unique was that the church was just outside the city limits so that we could begin the great vigil in actual darkness. The other unique feature was that the church had, in terms that they use in the East, it had a churchyard, a cemetery. Indeed, I knew most of the people in the churchyard. I had buried most of them. 
So we began the great vigil of Easter in utter darkness in a cemetery in the place of death. The great Easter fire crackled into life and from it the paschal candle, the Easter candle was lighted and held by the deacon and those lights commanded our attention in the dark. It's the only thing you could look at was the light. And the deacon would lead us into church in a procession and he would sing the light of Christ and we would say thanks be to God. And then a little further and a little higher, the light of Christ, thanks be to God. The light of Christ, thanks be to God. Light has broken the darkness. Joy has shattered the depression. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new age has begun. And we're part of it. That's where I want to be.